Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. We need to talk about your flair. Really? I, I have 15 pieces on. Look, Joanna. Yeah. People can get a cheeseburger anywhere, okay? They come to tchotchkes for the atmosphere and the attitude, okay? That's what the flair's about. It's about fun. Yeah. You do want to express yourself, don't you? That was a scene from Office Space, uh, where Jennifer Aniston is uh, being talked to about not having enough flair. Because today we are talking about faking it, faking happiness at your job. It's actually a thing. It's called emotional labor. It is a thing that apparently some people want to ban. Other people question whether it is real. And by other people, we mean Tim. Uh, I am merely skeptical of its analytical value. Uh, I don't I don't really think it's a concept that helps us, but we're going to learn along today with some people who are smarter than me. And we will be talking to uh, some folks and researchers with a variety of opinions. But first, let's talk to someone who has had a really crappy job. Kara O'Regan is 28 and is calling us from West Nyack, New York. Kara, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Kara, we're not going to identify specifically where you worked, but suffice to say, you worked at a large U.S. corporation and you had to deal directly with customers in person. I did. I spent about four years there in a uh, retail environment. So what did you have to do, I guess, especially when it relates to emotional labor? We were encouraged to be positive and to put a positive spin on things whenever possible. There was a lot of doublespeak that we were taught in order to deliver bad news, you know, always with a smile on your face, a lot of clapping involved, that sort of thing. Clapping? Uh, yeah. Clapping for the customers, clapping for our coworkers, any excuse to applaud anyone. That, I'm sure, made the work environment unpleasant, but did it ever bleed over into your life when you left work? Yeah, for sure. I just remember being really angry all the time. I just, being in traffic, I was angry, standing online at the bank, I was angry, just angry, angry, angry all the time. And I was having dreams that I was at work, you know, and that was just a, a normal stressful day at work. And then I'd wake up and then have to go and have a normal stressful day at work. Obviously not the biggest fan of this job. Uh, why did you stay? The financial crisis happened my senior year of college when I was already at this job. So when I graduated, you know, this was a company that was actually still making money, unlike a lot of other companies at the time. And so I decided to stay for the job security. Did the like techniques they taught you for like breaking bad news to a customer, did those help? Yeah, it definitely did help. Um, and actually, a lot of those tactics I still use in my day-to-day -day life. But a lot of the people that I encountered had a lot more going on than just, you know, the situation at hand. The Their responses would be out of proportion to what was actually going on. And I, I don't feel like they really prepared us very much for people taking their own stress and, and psychological distress out on us. Now that you have left that job, do you have similar stress issues or has things changed? How have they changed? Things have changed a lot. I'm not angry all the time anymore, which is a You're delightful change. Yeah. I don't find myself sitting in traffic and wanting to like murder people, which is great. Um, and my stress level is much lower. I'm doing work now that jives a little bit better, both with my personality and my physical body. 
Um, so things are, are very different and I am really grateful for the experience that I had in that job, but also so glad and so relieved that I never have to go there again if I don't want to. Kara O'Regan, thanks so much for talking to us about your crappy job that, that you're used to <laughs> well, Thanks for talking to me. And here's to many years of better employment ahead. Yeah. Oh, God, I hope so. <laughs> okay, so we have talked to someone who had a crappy job where they had to pretend they were happy when they were absolutely not. Now, like we said before, this is a thing. It's called emotional labor. And we are now going to talk to a researcher who has looked at this thing, looked at emotional labor on a large scale. Alicia Grandy is a professor of industrial and organizational psychology at Penn State. Alicia, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. What is emotional labor? So emotional labor is a type of work where instead of like physical labor, where you're using your muscles to perform the work, you're using your emotions to perform the work. And that's really central to the exchange between yourself and other people. The person working at Starbucks is a great example. Um, the uh, cashier, uh, restaurant server. Would a Christmas elf count? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I would, I would say that would count. I can hear in my mind a lot of people saying emotional labor. Isn't that just another word for life? I mean, you know, when we have a bad day at work, we try not to bring it home or, you know, vice versa. I could be totally miserable right now. Absolutely. I, <laughs> I could be too. <laughs> so, yeah, but what's the difference between, you know, the regular sort of regulation that we do of our own emotions versus this thing called emotional labor? I think the easiest way to understand how it's different is when we make nice with our supervisor or um, with a friend that maybe we're feeling a little bit uh, tense around, we're doing it by choice. We're doing it maybe in a moment and then we have a break and we do our own thing. Um, it's not an ongoing, constant expectation for eight hours. What are the negative effects of this? When you're... Uh, Putting on that smile, there's a variety of different things that can happen. One is that people take advantage of it. People realize that you have to keep doing it, and so they might treat you back uh, however they wish. And this is part of what also makes it different in a, a customer service exchange, right? Um, so if I'm smiling at my friend, I assume my friend will smile back. But there's no such assumption in a customer service exchange. We hope they're smiling back, but they're not necessarily. Often these kinds of uh, workers get mistreated, by customers, and they still have to maintain that smile. And that, that creates a lot of sense of dissonance, of feeling differently inside than outside for extended periods of time. Um, and that's been shown to create a lot of tension, um, physical tension, which can then uh, build up and create uh, somatic symptoms, health issues. Um, and over time, it can result in job burnout. So what are the um, implications of this? Is it possible to say, you know, we want to make changes so that there's less emotional labor? Or is it just sort of the implications are we need to remunerate this more? So more um, what's likely to help is the changing how we value it and how we treat people who do it. And I've done a few studies to look at what is it that makes this less likely to result in burnout and dissatisfaction and tension. One is the feeling that one's doing it uh, more by choice and less controlled by some supervisor watching you or because you have to, 
um, when it feels more autonomous, then it actually is less distressing. Uh, to what extent does this depend on the type of person? Are there just some people who can pull this off better than others? Yeah, um, as you might expect, extroverts tend to be a bit more skilled at it. Um, what that means, though, is that it might take them longer to burn out from this kind of work. Mm. It's just a matter of time in the end if you're doing this repeatedly. Now, this is where breaks come in handy. If we recognize the challenge of smiling constantly to people that we don't actually know or like or have ongoing relationships with, um, if we recognize the, the, the strain of it, the, the tiringness of it, then maybe we can be more understanding when people need to take a break, to step into that back room and kind of breathe a little before continuing to do it some more. All right. Alicia Grandy, professor of psychology at Penn State, thank you so much. You're welcome. It was great to talk to you. So Alicia Grandy comes down on the side that emotional labor is mostly bad. But our next guest comes down on the side that there's actually a bright side to emotional labor and that it's the more important side, that emotional labor is good. So Blake Ashworth is a professor of management at Arizona State University. Hello, Blake. Good morning. So why is emotional labor a good thing? Well, it's because people who actually enjoy their work, who really do the, like the idea of providing service, enjoy connecting with the people that they're helping. And so sometimes, if you're not feeling the emotions you're supposed to be feeling, uh, pretending that you are or psyching yourself into feeling them actually feels good because you're being true to the role. So in a sense, you're, at one level, you're being phony because you're not really feeling it in the moment, but you're being authentic in a more deep way because you really care about the role and you care about the customer. Huh. So, I mean, how do you think, do these things both happen? Like the sort of laborious faking it and the kind of happy faking it? Well, there's several ways of doing emotional labor, and the way you do it has a big impact on how you feel about it and how your customers feel about it. One way is to spontaneously and genuinely feel the emotion. In that case, there's no labor per se. So a nurse, for example, feels automatic sympathy when she sees an injured child. There's no need to fake it. She's, she's in the moment. Another way, though, is surface acting, where... Uh, you really don't feel it, but you act as if you do. So the way you hold your body, your voice tone, your, your facial expression, you're trying to convey certain emotions. And the third way is deep acting, where you try to feel it by psyching yourself into the moment. You might give yourself a pep talk, or you might hit your shoulder to feel a bit of adrenaline surge. So you're trying to get into the moment. Uh, people who care about their job, that is, they identify with their role and they're into service, are more likely to do deep acting. That is, they actually try to feel what they're supposed to feel in the moment. Whereas people who are less into their role are more inclined to take the easy way out, which is the surface acting. And that's where you get into more trouble because it feels phony to the person doing it. Often the customers pick up on that phoniness. And so it kind of hurts the interaction and makes the person kind of feel like, well, what am I doing this anyway for? It, it, isn't, it isn't me. So maybe you could help me with this because I've been having trouble understanding, I guess, the usefulness of the concept of emotional labor. It seems like the big distinction you're making between positive and negative emotional labor is really just if people feel like their job is worthwhile. And doesn't that really just suggest that it's a question of do people feel they have job satisfaction and their job is accomplishing something? That certainly is a big part of the story. To the extent you buy into the importance of what you're doing, you actually care about why that job exists and you care about the people that you're working with, the more likely you are to feel that this labor is not actually laborious. It's actually part and parcel of the job. 
Uh, that said, there's more to it than that. So people who, for example, are high in emotional intelligence, they're good at reading the cues of other people and, and their own bodily cues, uh, they tend to be more naturally into doing deep acting as well. And then finally, it is the job itself. So you might love the idea, for example, of being a waiter, but if you work in a place where uh, management is coming down hard on you and they're hypercritical, uh, you know, that makes you less likely to want to engage in the role deeply. And at that, that point, you might back up and just do surface acting to your detriment as well as the customers. I feel like a lot of people go to work and feel like they are playing a role, even if they're not client-facing, you know, and there's just social conventions that people will have to follow when they're out in public. How is that day-to-day stress different from emotional labor specifically? Yeah, what you're saying is very true. I think every role from being a parent to being a manager to being a salesperson involves emotional labor. It's been studied almost exclusively in the work context and uh, focusing more on service people because of this customer-facing role. But really, all of us have emotional labor in our lives. You know, if, if my wife is in a good mood and I've got to pretend I am, in a sense, that's emotional labor. Uh, so we engage in it in an active way because that's the nature of dealing with other human beings when we are or not feeling things that we're supposed to. You you mentioned, for example, you know, it's a matter of finding the right people who can sort of do this kind of labor and and not uh, be too tripped up about it. But, I mean, if you are in a really crappy sales job that no rational person would, if not believe in, believe that there's a level of perkiness that one should have about this job in any circumstance, whether you believe in it or not. So, I mean, when I imagine emotional labor in that setting, it does sound different from day-to-day life because it's sort of a performance that no one could believe in because it's, it's kind of preposterous. Yeah, it's very true. When you have roles that require highly scripted behavior, highly repetitive behavior, uh, if they're roles that allow very little autonomy for projecting your own personality, those kinds of things take a real toll. It's hard for anybody to care enough about the role at that point to really be themselves. Mm. But and isn't that, that a separate issue from emotional labor? Like if you have a manager who's more critical of you than commending you, I mean, that just means you have a bad manager. Is that an emotional mm-hmm. labor problem or is that just bad management? It but, becomes an emotional labor problem because you're far less inclined to engage in deep acting when that happens. Deep acting takes work. You've got to psych yourself into the role. So, for example, I was talking to a teacher who had to walk into her classroom each morning. She said, the first thing I do outside the door before I open it is I take a deep breath and I count to three and I kind of will myself to be in a positive mood because the second I walk in that door, the students will pick up on my mood. But if she's in a school that belittles her, that uh, doesn't treat her well as an employee, then it becomes very hard to be motivated enough to care. And At that point, she'll go through the motions and the students will pick up on the fact that she's into surface acting and it's, it's to everybody's detriment. As a follow-up to that, you know, we talked to an employee of a major um, retail operation earlier in the show, and she talked about how she really resented um, the kinds of, like, team-building, spirit-building activities where, like, her and her coworkers before a shift would get together and clap and applaud and cheer and try and get themselves into that kind of positive mode. And that seems to me like what you, you would characterize as getting ready to do that deep acting, getting mm-hmm. your, your head on straight. But that was the specific example of emotional labor that she did not like and made her feel uncomfortable. Right. So, you know, is, is the management solution to this, to like create that pep talk atmosphere, also going to be emotional labor as well? 
Uh, yes and no. I mean, that does work for some employees. So Walmart has their cheer every morning. And for some employees who are into it, it actually does kind of get their adrenaline pumping and they feel more of this team spirit and off they go. But for a lot of people, they have just the opposite reaction. It feels kind of phony and contrived. The, the takeaway is you want to do things that actually resonate well with your employees. And that means hiring people who get it, who understand what you're all about, and they buy into it, and then training them to have the skills to then project the kind of personality that's needed. Do you think we were doing emotional labor in the current current service industry sense of the word, you know, like 100 years ago? Like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to jive this with Downton Abbey, and I'm trying to figure out <laughs> if the people in Downton Abbey were performing emotional labor or not. Definitely. But they were just following a script where you say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. They weren't having to be like, and how was your day? Would you like that pearls look lovely on you? Well, the script is somewhat different than emotional labor. Emotional labor means that you are projecting the socially appropriate emotion. Mm. It doesn't mean you're reading a script. In fact, reading a script tends to kill spontaneity. So it makes it hard to be a genuine or seemingly sincere actor, so to speak, if you're reading a script, Mm. which is why autonomy is so important. Mm. So a great example is Zappos or Southwest Airlines. They deliberately hire and train people who really enjoy working with other people. They really do. They don't tell you as a flight attendant what you must say in a given moment beyond just the FAA script. They allow you to improvise. And in doing that, the people are projecting their own personality. Blake Ashworth, professor of management at Arizona State University. Thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, Tim. Sabri. A, we have heard face off. <laughs> Let the emotional labor begin. <laughs> We've heard from a variety of academic opinions, and you and I have both been waiters or otherwise in the service industry. What do you think of all of this? Uh, Emotionally uh, confused, hurt, (laughs) uh, hungry, definitely. Uh, No, I mean, I think I'm, I'm torn because, you know, obviously having been in the service industry and there's obviously... Uh, a problem here. But my fear is that emotional labor as like a concept kind of uh, disguises the problem or hides the real problem, which is that people are in jobs that they aren't suited for or don't like. Because what we heard from Kara is that she really needed a job and she knew that she wasn't suited for the job she had, but she didn't seem to have a lot of other choice. And what was interesting to me was that she walked away from it saying that she still uses some of those techniques of dealing with people, of projecting the right emotion in her daily life. I would say, though, that, yes, she got tools from it, but there is a difference from the odd bout of emotional labor in daily life versus standing on your feet, pretending for an eight-hour, ten-hour shift at a time. I, I mean, I totally appreciate that there are, are instances where people are not suited for customer-facing or social uh, jobs. I get that. But I don't think that you can dismiss all of the instances of negative emotional labor simply by saying, well, those weren't the right people for the job. I really do think that there is a point at which the, the fakery that is being asked by a company is so incongruous with the job, the rest of the job duties, that it just ends up being demeaning and truly stressful. So I would say the one area where that comes through for me is when we discussed with everybody the autonomy that workers are given. Because it does seem there are times 
where companies are basically using their customer service employees as cannon fodder for angry customers, Mm. where they're the ones, and I'm thinking of airports or cable company call centers, where they have to deal with people's complaints but aren't given really any ability to fix them. But I think the idea that people in service jobs need to be cheery or at least courteous isn't that crazy. And the other thing that I would say is I'm not convinced it's that prevalent either. I don't go into many customer service areas, whether they're restaurants or retail stores or call centers, and find that I'm facing lots of really super smiley, friendly people, uh, fake or not. All right. Well, but the other thing I think I've learned is that maybe I'm just a deep misanthrope. (laughs) Uh, because, you know, I feel like most people in a public setting are doing emotional labor, uh, as, as Blake Ashforth said. They are trying to put out the right emotion for the right time and often faking it till they make it. You know, when we wake up on Monday morning, I don't know too many people who are that thrilled to go to work. And I like my job. But we sort of say, hell yeah, we get ourselves psyched and we go. And that's emotional labor. And I think that the question becomes if you can't convince yourself that your job is, is meaningful or important. Well, lots to think about. Um, But maybe we'll conclude this with the (laughs) reminder that we should all be nicer to the customer service people we deal with. Oh, dude, yes, absolutely. That is a winner right there. Yeah. And now for something completely different. At Quartz, we report on surprising discoveries. They're the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. And uh, today's surprising discovery is also about faking it for decades and the mental stress that that can cause. Um, We're talking about a man named Michael John Hand, an American former Green Beret and CIA operative who in the 1970s started a bank in Australia which ended in massive fraud and collapse and allegations of work for military contractors and drug runners and the mysterious suicide of Han's business partner. And then he disappeared for 35 years and was only just discovered, surprisingly, in Idaho. In Idaho. He sets up a fake bank that's actually a front for drug runners and arms dealers in Australia. Disappears for 30 years and now it's found in Idaho. I should say the the drug dealers and and arm thing, that's an allegation. (laughs) Still under investigation. But yes, that is is apparently what happened. ProPublica and the Daily Beast are reporting this. And What's he up to in, in Idaho? What's well, he's 73, and he's uh, running a company that provides, um, apparently, firearms to the U.S. government, special forces. So there is a question about whether the U.S. really tried particularly hard to find this guy and maybe <laughs> why they hadn't been trying to find him. Can we have him on the show? Let's I'd, find a way. I think we should try. I don't see any reason why not. All right, so that's all the time we got for today. Uh, if you want to know anything more about how we really feel right now or anything else happening in the global economy, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. And while you're at court, sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start your day. And we'd love to know what you think of this podcast, by the way, what you like, what you didn't like, what topics we should take on. So email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave us a message at 802-430-6779. We're on Twitter. I'm at Sabritree. And Tim is at Tim Fernholtz, F-E-R-N-H-O-L-Z. And Actuality is at ActualityPod. 
Jake Gorski is responsible for our theme song, and for that we thank him. We thank our producer, Claire Tennisketter, and our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from around the world. See you then. Tell your friends about Actuality. <laughs> and don't fake it.